really does. We, we, you have to take more time than just a day to celebrate something that changed the entire course of human history. And if you're here today and your faith is based in the salvation of Jesus Christ that he offers, his birth and, of course, his crucifixion are the two greatest events, the two most meaningful things to you. And so we make a big deal out of it. Because when Christ came, when Christ came as a little baby, he came as more than that. And I've been telling you, you know, like we're going to talk about him coming as a baby. We're going to talk about that next week, next week, one week before Christmas. But what we've been talking about is how Christ came as the Word in John chapter 1 and verse 1, that Christ came as the Word, meaning God's tangible, visible message of truth to you and to me. That's what Jesus came when he came. He also came as a perfect priest. We talked about that last week in Hebrews. But today, we talk about him coming as a king. And we've sung today and other days many songs related to his coming as a king. And you know, when a king is born, it is an incredibly big deal. Many countries around the world have days that celebrate um, royalty and the birth of royalty. I, I picked out one. I picked out Holland to tell you about. I'm, I'm 100% Dutch, a little, little background from me, and I thought I'd share it with you. Holland has King's Day. They weren't too creative with naming the day. It's just King's Day. It used to be Queen's Day, and guess why they changed it? Because there was a queen, and, and then she passed away, and her son became king, and so they changed the name of the day. We're simple people, the Dutch, okay? We, we, we enjoy it, though. King's Day is a big deal in Holland. In fact, it used to be April 30th in honor of one queen, and, but when this new king came to power, he had it changed to his birthday, which was April 27th. So I don't know if that's an ego thing. I don't really know. I didn't look into that. I didn't call him up. They're like, hey, why'd you change the day? But they celebrate it, and it's a day-long festival, especially in the capital of Amsterdam. Uh, there are markets, there are concerts for 24 hours. Throughout the day, into the night, it's just a celebration of the king. And it's a big deal. And of course, it's a big deal for you and for me to celebrate as well. We celebrate the fact that Christ came as king. We, we weren't the first ones, though, obviously. I mean, we've come onto the scene uh, some 2,000 years after our Christ's birth. And we celebrate it each and every year. Some of you have been celebrating more of his birthdays than I have. Some of you fewer. It's all right. Uh, we celebrate his birth, the birth of a king. That probably the first ones to celebrate the birth of a king in terms of a birthday celebration may have been the wise men. The wise men came onto the scene somewhere between one and two years after Christ was born. And we pick up their story in Matthew chapter 2. I invite you to turn there, Matthew chapter 2. It's page 681 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. Matthew chapter 2 is the story of wise men or the magi. And in the story, we're going to see two different responses to a king. How do you respond? Well, there's, a, there's obviously a very good, healthy way that we should respond to a king, and that's going to be represented in the story by the magi and what they do. And they're going to give us four things that 
are great for us to adopt in ways of how do we go before our King, Jesus Christ? How do we interact with an all-powerful God? Um, But there's also a very dark story in this passage. Um, And in that story, we see what is the wrong response to a king? What is an improper response? What are some of the things that we see in this story and that opposed the birth of a king? Then, of course, we'll talk about what that looks like today. But first, we're going to look at the followers of the king. If you're taking notes at first blank, we're going to talk about the followers of the king. And and we begin the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, drop down to verse 9 with me. They visited with Herod. We're going to look at that, but I just want to focus in on on the followers of the king and what they did. In verse 9 it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Other translations, of course, may say frankincense. I almost said it just out of habit. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, we're going to talk about what the wise men did, what the magi did in terms of a proper response, a response that followers of the king would have. But in both of these stories, there's an incredible testimony as to Jesus being born a king. First, I want you to see it in chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Very important. Very important. Um, when, like I talked about this, the king of Holland, when he was born, he was not immediately the king. There was already a queen. It took many years before he was given that title. He was a prince. The wise men, the magi, came into Jerusalem not saying, where is he who will become king? They said, where is he who has been born a king? From the second he was born, he was king. That is what they were saying. That is what many of the prophets in terms of uh, Micah prophesied. Even in the book of Numbers, we see prophecies related to a Messiah. Even in Genesis, we see this. Throughout the Old Testament, there's prophecies that regard a coming king for Israel, a king of the Jews or a king of kings. Well, these magi, I want to put yourselves in the shoes of these magi. We don't know a lot about them. They came from the east, could have been Babylon, could have been farther east into uh, India or just in the desert regions. But these were, very, these were wise men. I think the best guess was probably they came from Babylon. Babylon was a, a seat for astronomy. Like if you love to study astronomy and, and you want to learn about it, you went to Babylon. So just guessing, best educated guess 
is that these men came from Babylon, which would have been a very long journey to come to Jerusalem. Well, these men, they knew something from Scripture. We, we're not really sure what they knew, but they, they had text They had prophecies that they were studying that told them when this star appears, there is a king that has been born. Now, they must have had either, I think they had an amazing amount of faith to say, we should right now pack up what we own, or at least pack up some incredible valuables, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and we should go and see this baby. We're not really sure where he is, but we're going to follow a star. Think about what it would take. What would it take for you to say, hey, um, I can't come to work today. Kids, get in the van. We're going to follow a star. Not sure where we're going, but we're going to see a king. This is an incredible testimony to the kingship, the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because these men... We don't know how many men there were, but these men were willing to drop what they were doing, either leave their families or take their families with them, go on an incredibly dangerous journey, because today, you and me assume there's police and there's law enforcement as we journey. Back then, that wasn't the case. Either they traveled without protection, or they had to pay an incredible amount of money to have the protection travel with them. We don't really know, but I'm just saying the commitment on these men's part to go and see a baby king, I think speaks incredibly loudly to the fact that Jesus is king. He was king of the Jews. They believed it. They believed it enough to drop whatever they were doing and to follow a star and to search for him. What an incredible story. It'd be just... One of, those guys I'd like to, one of those guys I'd like to talk to when we get to heaven. Like, what the star look like? What were you studying? I mean, just an incredible testimony, even from what we know. Well, how did these men, how did these followers of the king respond? Again, if you're filling in the blanks, the first thing they did is they pursued him. They pursued him. In verse 1 through 2, in verse 1, it says, From the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, they were at a place... Babylon or somewhere east, they saw a star and they said, you know what? We don't know a lot, but we know that that star means that there's been a king born. Let's go. And so often, if you think in terms of your testimony of faith, it doesn't start with you understanding everything, does it? My testimony of faith does not start with me understanding everything about my Savior. But I saw enough that said, I want to pursue that. I want to pursue him. I want to learn more. I want to find out what do I need to do. These men, the first thing they did as followers of the king, they pursued him. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going towards him. I'm pursuing him. It's the first thing they did. Second, we drop down to verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, they, in verse 9, it says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it was stopped over the place where the child was. So it isn't, this isn't the first time they saw the star. This isn't what verse 10 is referring to. It's saying when they saw that the star had settled on the place, when it had reached the location of the Savior, they were overjoyed. Or some of your translations may say they rejoiced. And that's the second thing I see there. I think they, they rejoiced at Him. At, 
They hadn't even seen the, the child Christ himself. They hadn't seen the person, the flesh. But the fact that the star had stopped and they had reached the location of the king caused them to be overjoyed. They rejoiced at just the thought that they were that close. The idea that they were about to see the king. They rejoiced at it. Followers of the king rejoice at just the thought of being around him, of being near him, of approaching a place that they know they're going to be focused upon him. The opportunity, the opportunity to see him caused them joy within their hearts. That's what a follower of the king does. They pursue him, and when they know they're close, they begin to rejoice. They begin to be filled with joy. Well, verse 11 is, is, is just so beautiful. I don't know how you picture this. Um, honestly, they, they were not still in the stable. They were in a house probably, a, place, a normal place to stay. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down to worship him. There's so much room for us to imagine what that must have been. What that must have been like for Mary. Possibly still nursing. Um, certainly Jesus was you know, just crawling around, maybe walking around that age, getting into things, sort of, uh, you know, just a little bit of a handful, but still very dependent upon his mother. And here come these men of wealth uh, that very likely had an enormous caravan, and they stop in front of your house, and they come in. And maybe even before you're able to ask what's going on, they bow down and begin to worship your infant child. What an amazing picture of the kingship of Jesus. They worshiped him. What does the follower of Christ do? The follower of Christ, these men, they pursued him. They rejoiced at the thought of being with him. And then they worshiped him. As soon as they saw him, they bowed down in verse 11 and worshiped him. Some powerful things. Some powerful things to see. What is worship? Um, I've, I've described this to you before. Worship is just ascribing worth. It's telling God what you already know of Him. These men bowing down, they were ascribing worth to Christ. They were saying, uh, we acknowledge who you already are. We're not making you king. We're just acknowledging what you already are. And because you're king, even at the age of one, we are bowing down to you. Because we worship you. Well, lastly, again in verse 11, it says, then when they were done with their worship, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. They, they gave, they gave what, of, of something that was meaningful to them. We, we don't know how valuable or invaluable it was. These guys could have been extremely wealthy. We have no idea. But they weren't just giving a pittance. The, these were offerings. These were gifts that not only were valuable in the sense of what they were worth, they were also very significant in terms of they all were gifts that were given to a king. When they gave the gifts, they weren't just saying, here's something of great value. They were saying, here's something of great value that is given to a king. And we are again worshiping you with these gifts. We're ascribing the worth to you. We are acknowledging that you are a king with the gifts that we give to you. These gifts were incredibly meaningful. So again, a follower of the king, 
They pursue the king. They rejoice at the thought of being with the king. They worship the king, and they gave to the king. But in, in the same story, of course, what do enemies of the king look like? Enemies of the king. We begin reading in verse 3, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod was a, was a mean dude, uh, and he became slightly uh, insane towards the end of his reign. Very, he, he did a lot of great things. Uh, one might say he was an incredible politician in terms of built things. He was very popular. Um, he did things uh, for the people, not just built things for himself, but things that the people wanted. He produced and made. Um, there was very little poverty during his reign, but he also was very cruel when it came to protecting his power. Any threats against his power were quickly eliminated towards the end, even killing off a wife and two sons because he just thought maybe they were after him, so he just took care of them. This is a mean guy when it came to protecting his power. But I want, again, I want you to put yourself in the mindset that I want to talk about the testimony that Herod lends to the kingship of Jesus Christ. Think about you as king. Three guys show up from the east, and they say they're following a star, and they say, hey, we're here to see the king. No, not you, the one who's been born king. If I'm a king, and some men show up and tell me, hey, we're looking for a baby who right now is the king, that's a little ridiculous, honestly. I mean, think of what Herod could do. One, he could just laugh it off, like, I don't want to even see these guys. Like, I don't need to talk to these guys. Herod was, he had authority. He didn't have to welcome them. He didn't have to talk to them. He didn't have to see them. But he hears about this, and something tells him that there's a problem. Think of what else he could have done. He, he could have said, listen, you can't come into my palace and tell me that someone else is king. I'm throwing you three in the, in the prison. You're going to the dungeon. I have nothing. I mean, there's a lot of things Herod could have done if he had thought that it was insulting or if he thought it was ridiculous. Herod didn't think that. When he heard this, he calls people that studied the Scriptures, and they quote to him from Micah chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 2. Micah, who prophesied hundreds of years before this and said, hey, Bethlehem, you, from you there's going to come a shepherd for the people. So all the things, all the things that Herod could have done, he consults people who knew Scripture. And when he had the testimony of these magi, and he had the truth of Scripture, he believed it was true. Someone who did not know Christ, who did not know God, did not worship the true God, believed from Scripture and the testimony of others 
that there had been born a king. That's an incredible testimony. Well, what do enemies, what do, enemies do when they're faced with the king? One, we, of course, know that they don't do what a follower of the king does. Herod was not going to pursue. Herod was not going to rejoice. Herod was not going to worship him. Herod was not going to give gifts to him. The first thing Herod did is he misled the king's followers. When you're an enemy of the king, the first thing you do is you look to mislead the followers of the king. At least that's what Herod did. He moved to deceive them. In verse 7, we read this. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He's trying to nail down, how old is this child? I need to know, how old is the child? Okay, you gave me that information. Thank you very much. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and lies to them by saying, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so I can go worship him. Herod had no intention of ascribing worth, of saying, yes, you are king. No intention of that. And we know that because of how he responded. In in verse 12, we read that an angel warned these magi not to return to Herod. And so they returned to their country by another route. The angel, uh, from verses 13 through 15, we find out that the angel, God's always protecting his plan. But you get down to verse 16, and you find out Herod's true colors. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. What does an enemy of the king do? They look to eliminate the king. Number one thing, you don't like the king, you look to eliminate him. And Herod was in a position and, and of a mindset where he was extreme, extremely extreme. It, it, so extreme that you and I, I don't think, can even comprehend what it would take to say, I want to kill every two-year-old and under boy in an entire region of the country. Amazingly cruel. But again, there's parallels for us to talk about today. I think our culture today is constantly striving to eliminate the king. Um, In in terms of science, uh, the studies, in terms of how we um, even measure dates, this BCE business, trying to just call it common era, take Christ out of the way we uh, set our dates, Um, in terms of, you know, it's not politically okay, to say Merry Christmas, we're supposed to say Happy Holidays. I don't know what that means, really. Uh, I mean, how would you like it? I Think about someone coming to your birthday party and saying, well, Happy Holiday to you. You know, like, I'm not, you know, you can't, they, they take Happy Birthday off your cake because we ain't doing that. It's a holiday. We're just celebrating a holiday. We can't make it about you specifically. That's not proper. It's just ridiculous. But our culture today, it, because... Our culture, and there are people in our culture, and there's a a ruler over this world, Satan, battles against Christ. 
They are enemies of the king, and so they are moving and working to eliminate Christ from anything they can get their hands on. Let's just not think about him. Let's erase his name. Let's erase the idea of Christ in Christmas or in our schools, whatever it is. They want to take Christ away. They want to eliminate the king. And I know in a room like this, I'm not preaching at you, right? Like, I would hope your desire is not to eliminate the king from your life and from your conversations. But what I think all of us, and myself, starting with myself, can struggle with sometimes is we try to eliminate the king from areas. We try to compartmentalize because we compartmentalize a lot of things. Like, okay, work is work. You know, when I'm at school, that's school. Um, I, you know, I have this time over here that I do this. And we compartmentalize a lot of things. But you know what you cannot compartmentalize is a king. I mean, let's, let's imagine this. You're in the realm of a king, and you go to your house, and, and you just say, hey, king, listen, I'm sorry, but in here, you're not the king. In here, uh, in, in my house, I'm the king. Or she's the king. I mean, whatever. You know, you're not king here. And the king's like, yeah, I am. I didn't stop being the king. I'm sorry. King, I, I went outside the castle walls to work in the field. You're not king out here. This is where I do field work. Yeah, I am. I'm the king. The king is always the king. You can, we can't compartmentalize him, but we try to do that. We, we tend to do that. We want to do that. So I think in today's society, we're not attacking little children. Um, we're not looking to eliminate a specific person. But we are trying to erase the name. We're trying to erase the teaching. We're trying to erase the thought of Christ as king. We need to fight that. That is... That is the thought of an enemy of the king. That's what an enemy of the king does. What, what should our response be? Well, you've heard it, right? Like, we should pursue him. Instead of uh, erasing him or just sitting back and not acknowledging him, we should pursue him. God, what are you doing? What can I get involved in that you are doing? Where are you active? Where are you making a difference in people's lives? I want to be there. Whatever you're doing, God... Align my heart with what you're doing. What about rejoicing? These magi rejoiced at just the fact that they had reached the town. You know? Like, oh my goodness, I have this opportunity now to see the king, to worship the king. I am so overjoyed at that possibility. Sometimes we're a long way from that. And you can rejoice and you can celebrate your Savior anytime and anywhere. Sometimes my mind is so full of things that even my favorite Christmas song may come on the radio. I'm halfway through the song. I don't even hear it. I'm so far away from him. And I realize, God, I just need to time out my life right now. Time out what's going through my mind. I need to worship you. Even as I'm driving this van, this, van, this truck, whatever it is. Even as I'm driving. I want to rejoice at the possibility that I get to worship you. And then, of course, we can worship him. We can worship him. The Magi came, they worshiped him. We can give him what he would like. Our time, our, our gifts, our, um, 
our praise, whatever it is that we have that can be meaningful to him, we give that to him. Of course, you know, the, the number one thing he's after is our hearts. He wants us to love him. That's the one thing he wants. And this morning, if you're, if you're still on the fence, I, there's, there's one thing to say, yes, you're my Savior, and we're going to talk about that, of course, Christmas Eve, that Christ came as Messiah and Savior. What an incredible celebration. It's another thing to talk about Christ being king, because that means he gets to call the shots. He gets to decide things. That's what a king does. And so for you and for me, there's a part of us that go, I don't know if I like that idea. And if you're, if, if you're in that tension right now, I want to share one last thing with you. One last amazing truth, and it's, it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. It's very interesting when you look at the Gospels as a whole. You have in the Old Testament prophecies about a king of the Jews, a king of kings that would come. You have Matthew who's recording it down. Jesus never speaks of his kingship until this passage. People mocked him with it. Um, the religious leaders said, he's calling himself a king of the Jews, and we know that Herod's the king, and Caesar's really the emperor, and so we think we, you should get rid of him. Jesus never uses that title, not, not in recorded not in the recorded gospel until this moment. Now, I just want to set the stage for you. Jesus has already surrendered. Um, this is right before his crucifixion. And Jesus is on trial. He's been, he was on trial before the high priest. He didn't really have a lot to say to them. They didn't want to listen. He wasn't going to talk to them anyways. They send him to Pilate because they need Roman authority to kill Jesus. And here Christ is standing before Pilate and Pilate begins to interrogate him. John chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here's just what I want to tell you. If you're on, on the fence, you're saying, I don't know if I'm all about Jesus being king. You couldn't ask for a better king. He didn't go around flaunting it. He didn't go around like, hey, I'm the king. I mean, he never mentions it. But when he's, you know, put on the spot by Pilate, he says, I, I am a king but it's not of this world. It's not like I'm the king of the Jews or I'm the king of Rome. That's not what I'm after. My, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, I'm the king, and days later, he gave up his own life on the cross to offer salvation for you and for me. Jesus is a perfect ruler in, in the idea that he had 
ultimate authority, and he used it to serve people. You don't find anywhere where he did something for himself. You couldn't ask for a better king to serve, to love, to worship than our Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know what your response is to that, but I hope it's one of worship. I hope it's one that you can get excited about celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would worship Him. One of the, one of the um, powerful things about what Christ said, and I don't want to create a whole other sermon here, um, but when He said, my kingdom is not of this world, that means his, his authority is not of this world. What he does is not of this world. It's, it's divine. It's eternal. And we're going to take a moment right now to talk to this king and to ask him for some things for a, a family that's a part of this church. And so, Carl and Jenna, I'd like you to come forward. Um, 